Patrick gave me was to be provocative. So I'm not sure to what extent I'm going to fulfil that, but I've given it a go. So I'm going to do that by, um, as Patrick says, focusing on narratives of staff-student partnership. So I'm going to make a number of arguments. Um, we'll see how far you agree with me. That's fine if you do. First thing I'm going to argue is that narratives are important. So bear with me, there won't be too much about partnership as we go through that, though there will be a little bit more towards the end of that part of my argument. Then I'm going to make an argument that student-staff partnership has a particular narrative, and I'm going to get you to start thinking at that point as well about what you think that is, and hopefully we can have a bit of discussion about that. So, so don't go to sleep too much, I guess is my point. Um, then I'm going to argue that I think the narrative around staff-student partnership is a little bit idealistic, so Patrick said, being a little bit provocative there, um, and that it negatively impacts partnership work. So we'll see whether you're with me at the end, fine if you're not, hopefully I'll have provoked some thoughts anyway. Um, and then I will round off by suggesting how I think we could work together to build hopefully a more productive and helpful narrative. Okay, so as I said, stick with me at the first bit where I talk about narratives are, Im are important, um, particularly this slide, which is a little bit heavy. Um, but what I want to argue is that narratives are important because they're one of the ways, not the only way, but they're one of the ways in which we make sense of the world. And in a narrative, there are events and there are activities. And the difference between the two is that there's intentionality behind an activity. Okay. So it might be that something happens and then the outcome of that is an event. And the way that we make sense of the world through a narrative is via the plot. So the plot adds in temporality to it, the suggestion of causality, but it's never universal. So you can't falsify a narrative in the same way that you could a scientific theory. Okay? Or hypothesis, I guess I should say. Um, now, events are open to interpretation by the use of different plots. Okay, I'll illustrate this in a minute. Um, so, you might interpret it one way, I might interpret it an entirely different way. And the only way to decide between those is by negotiation. As I said, you can't falsify the narrative. We can only negotiate and say, that's what you think and why, this is what I think and why. And we are living in a wonderful time for illustrating this at the moment. So, go back three years. Some quite strong narratives around the UK's participation in the EU. So, I'm sure these are all recognisable to you. The top one, a narrative that the movement of people that's um, become possible by being in the EU has led to, I guess, um, standard of living in the UK dropping because you can't get an appointment with your doctor anymore or you have to wait a long time for that um, there's unemployment housing prices have gone up because um, there's I guess in this case the argument is too many immigrants coming into the UK that's one quite strong narrative we don't all have to agree with that but it's one interpretation another one down here um, there's a narrative around 
the, the difficulty with the NHS may or may not be to do with too many people trying to get to your doctor, but it's definitely to do with um, sending money to the EU and therefore not investing it in the NHS. So narr another narrative. And the final one right at the bottom of the bus about um, the UK not being in control of its own destiny. Now, I probably could have made different narratives there. So I could have made a narrative around um, the freedom of movement of people supports the NHS because um, there's a shortage of nurses in the UK, so you're getting skilled labour in to actually support the NHS. Now, I'm going to quickly ask you, if you think back three years, can you think of any strong narratives that were made about remaining in the EU and the benefits that have come? Well, research funding on Horizon 2021, and we got over 75%, I think, of the European research money in the UK. Yeah. Any others that you can think of? Part of community openness. Yep, so that was definitely used, but it was used on both sides of the debate as well, because there was also an argument about um, being insular to Europe rather than open to the rest. Yes, yeah, so the narrative was either we don't want to be part of it, we're a separate yep. divide, and we can make bigger relationships with the world, or actually yeah. you're cutting yourself off, you're into the The Peter Henderson narrative around um, formation of the EU as a way of avoiding conflict in Europe. Yes. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Uh, the ease of trade, but the, on the flip side, the constraint of trade uh, within the European Complex of, of only being allowed to do it, so people are not being allowed to do it with others. Yeah. So that's an argument that's coming across quite a lot at the moment from different organisations. Thank you. Um, I want to get a little bit of balance in uh, to that, but I also kind of want, wanted to make the point that yes, there were these narratives that were made, but they perhaps didn't come out as strongly. Um, which we might need to reflect on the outcome of the referendum. Um, so another example of the importance of narratives, where actually people, depending upon what narrative you have, can become heroes or villains, neither of which are probably realistic. Um, but these are both headlines from the past month. So either John Burke is the hero of an abusive Brexit debate, uh, whereby um, I guess he's standing up for parliamentary democracy um, and against an unelected um, Prime Minister who is um, trying to undermine the Constitution. Or you could have the following one where actually he's sinking the reputation of the House of Commons to its lowest point in modern history. Uh, whereby I guess he's actually undermining the Constitution by going against some of the conventions, particularly, I guess, in terms of threatening to uh, become a bit more creative. Boris Johnson was to break the law, the Ben law. So I'm hoping through those you can see, but kind of the importance of narratives to how we make sense in our lives. But also I want to make the point 
that we act upon narratives. So they're not just about making sense, but they change the way that we behave. Um, as this quote says, stories are lived before they're told. We act upon them. So I thought I should probably add in something about partnership in terms of this argument. Um, as Patrick said, uh, the scheme that I led for, I think, four years, I can't remember myself, which is rubbish, um, UCL Changemakers, it, it started in 2014, um, and it was introduced by the director of the Arena Centre then, Dilly Fung, and at the same time she introduced connected curriculum initiative which is UCL's kind of framework I guess for developing curriculum and UCL changemakers and this is UCL staff student partnership scheme. Now as Patrick said it built up, it grew, it introduced new aspects of it so it started as a, a scheme to support projects to enhance education and then it developed other aspects, working with departments to enhance their education and find out about the student experience. And it grew a student reviewer scheme so that students and staff could work collaboratively to review teaching. Now in 2018, Dilly left the department um, and both Connected Curriculum and Changemakers were put into review. Now, at the time, I guess there was a narrative of loss around connected curriculum. It's very associated with Dilly. It's very much like, hmm, what are we going to do with this now? Because she's not here, it's her initiative, does it still belong to UCL? Is there anyone pushing it? We're not sure. UCL Changemakers had a slightly different narrative around it at the time. I'm going to embarrass myself now. Um, because last year, this was the front page of UCL's website for about two weeks. Nice story about me there uh, being awarded UCL's first National Teaching Fellowship. Um, and as I said, it stayed there for two weeks. So there was a very strong narrative about success. Which is a kind of awkward story when you're also reviewing something. To say, to have a narrative and a story behind this one about great success at the same time I was thinking hmm, what are we doing here? <coughs> so Peter Felton's written UCL Changemakers weathered the storm in 2018 while other aspects of the broader initiative fell away because rather than a narrative of loss it had one of success but there's still a little bit more to this story than that because what was the narrative that UCL Changemakers was part of? Um, and when it went into review, it was very much part of a story of actually education at UCLs not being enhanced as quickly as we want it to be. It was a story, not necessarily of failure, but not of a, of a great success. What actually happened was, particularly the student union went round, and they argued that was the wrong narrative. What actually it was part of was a really successful cre creation of a culture of partnership at UCL. 
Anyone who remembers UCL five years ago knows that talking to students was not really something <laughs> What did they know about anything? Whereas now, actually, that's really quite a strong thing that happens at UCL. So what narrative was it part of? And it was very much the student union who said, no, you're, you're using the wrong narrative. The narrative around this is one about partnership. So again, hopefully, you're with me in terms of narratives are important. And they affect things, not necessarily at a big level, but also um, in terms of how we act. So, I'm going to move on to my second argument, which was that there's a particular narrative around staff-student partnership. So I just want you to talk to the people next to you about what you think of when you think of staff-student partnership. What's that story that surrounds it? <laughs> Okay, so what did you come up with? I knew that would go in different directions. I think I agree with all the points you make, but you're gonna, you just made my job interesting. So we will see what comes of the next bit. I'm gonna have to work harder to persuade you. I am gonna read you a little narrative that I wrote about partnership um, a few months ago, which in terms of the arguments I'm making is actually years ago. Uh, because it runs a little bit counter to what I'm going to argue later. But I was asked to write a section introduction, I guess. So I read all the chapters, and then they'd asked me to write something creative. I'm not sure I'm a creative person, but I gave it a go. Um, and this was what I came up with, having read all the chapters. All around the globe citizens of higher education embarked on a quest. They did so on the promise of a better future, one where they became fuller versions of themselves, empowered to be authentic, confident, passionate, articulate individuals in meaningful, trusting relationships with each other. And yet the terrain they had to cross was swampy and uncertain, confusing, risky place that required courage and collaboration to stay their paths. The teachers had to shed their need for authority and control. The students needed to find their voice and agency. It was terrain they could not cross alone, but only in the company of the other. For in sharing and listening and being, there was the promise of understanding. Not all made it, for some the promise failed, but those that did saw differently and would never be the same again. They came to realise that partnership was a way of being, permeating our souls and changing the ways we learn and teach and relate, a way that lets us fully be. And I guess the argument that I want to make is that I think there's a quest narrative around partnership. So I decided I'd better find out what quest really meant. <coughs> I think there is something about trying to achieve something difficult, working together with someone 
who you may not necessarily have the same point of view with, but coming together to share your different points of view. And there's a couple of points I wanted to bring out. One is I think there's an element <coughs> of self-actualisation in the, in the narrative. I think there's something about if you work with um, students and staff together, there's a, there's a potential to become the most that you can be. So if I look at paper uh, that Schlosser and Sweeney wrote, and they were writing about a relationship they had where they'd reviewed a course together. And they talk about the trust and respect that they developed between them became a resource and a pleasure in itself. This relationship, in fact, had specific benefits for each of them more individually as they sought to self-author their lives. So they're talking about finding out who they are and how they've done that through the relationship with each other. They've made themselves realise something about um, themselves. The other thing I think there is, <coughs> I guess, a disorientating dilemma. So you're working with someone different from yourself who makes you realise that actually you need to change the way that you see. Um, so Alison Cook says, as reported, again in a similar situation of uh, students and staff reviewing teaching together, uh, a staff member wrote, my student consultant's highlighting of the issue of how I bring myself into the classroom made me conscious of myself in an unaccustomed and uneasy way, such that I needed to reconsider um, my understanding and to see it uncomfortably in the light of my own positioning as a white person. <coughs> so I think there are kind of elements of the narrative that we tell when we write about partnership, which I would say are a little bit idealistic. And I'll come on to that in a minute. Because first I want to share with you a little bit about what I would consider my most successful partnership that I've had with a student. So this happened earlier this year. We were working together to um, design a workshop together, which we also ran together. So we, we didn't just design it, we delivered it together. For me, and also for him as well, it was just like working with a colleague. So he said to me afterwards, it was really natural working with you. And that was how I felt for me as well. It was really natural. He gave me one of my best compliments I think I've ever had, where he turned around and said to me, if you weren't an academic, say we were in another para parallel universe and you weren't one of my academics, I think we could be friends. <laughs> Which I thought was, was wonderful. Um, we have very similar ideas about partnership, which I think is one of the things which made it easy. Um, and we had a lot of respect for each other and the expertise that we were bringing. You will notice in, the, in that compliment he gave me that he actually didn't forget I was the academic, though. There was, there was still something there. He knew that I was the academic in the, in the partnership. I will argue later, I think that's not a bad thing either. <laughs> what I would say 
And the reason why I'm classifying it as my best partnership is because I think we really did work kind of, I guess, as equals in many respects, but not as equals because I was still the academic and I still had certain expertise and he had certain different expertise. But I didn't become a better or more fulfilled person as a result of it and he didn't either. <coughs> it wasn't earth-shaking for either of us. And I certainly wasn't troubled by the experience, and he certainly wasn't troubled <laughs> by the experience. We did learn from each other. He made me realise things about my beliefs about partnership, which were always there, but perhaps I wasn't as conscious of. And he certainly learned from me as well. He'd, he turned around to me at one point and said, wow, it's amazing working with you because I've been studying all these things and... Um, you know, they want me to be critical in my essays, but they never model how to be critical. And actually, I've just come out of conversation with you where we've been in a workshop together, and you'll say, oh, they talk about um, the importance of trust in partnership, but we've just been in this workshop and they're saying about inclusivity and unconscious bias, and it's all about how you trust people who are like yourselves. And that's kind of interesting because how do you trust, how then do you develop the trust with people who aren't like yourself? So we should think about that a bit more, you and I. Okay. And to me, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking out loud. To him, he's like, that's really critical. You've put a finger on something that needs exploring more. My academics never show me how to do that. So he did learn from being with me. <coughs> but it didn't change who he was as a person. It wasn't earth shattering. So, as I said, I am going to argue that I think some of the narrative is a bit idealistic. And I think one of the ways in which it is, is around power. So, I'm going to have to shift on my notes. So, partnership work is often seen as staff giving up power. Um, and therefore, the removal of power relationships between staff and students when they work together. So... Um, I'm going to draw on a paper by Lucy Mercer-Mapstone and some of her colleagues um, and I'll refer to it a bit later as well. They're talking about when they um, designed and co-led one of the um, workshops in the International Students as Partners um, Institute. <coughs> and they say in the paper that both Lucy M, so Lucy Mercer-Mapstone and Kelly um, suppressed in different ways their tendencies to lead and I think that's quite a common thing that we see in the literature people talking about trying to equalize power so forgive me a slight possible diversion while I think about power so we go back to Emerson in 1962 I realize that's a long way he talks about power um, not being a property of things it's not like an object you don't have it or not have it it's a relationship between two people or two groups of people um, so for example we probably say I have quite a lot of power over my two fairly small children um, far less so over my boss possibly a bit more over the people that I line manage but not as much as my children um, and power is actually based on dependency. So how much dependency 
they have on me, but also that I have on them. Okay, it's a two-way thing. And he argues that you can balance unequal power, either by the more powerful becoming more dependent upon the other person, or by them becoming less dependent upon you. He also argues that power can be balanced, but it can never be neutralised. So it doesn't just disappear, it's just that either you both have a bit more power over each other or a bit less. So, as I said, it's a while ago. Since the 1960s, people have tended to focus on um, access to resources and how much resources you have when they're thinking about those power relationships. But more recently, they've been talking about self-perception in terms of power and how actually the sense of power that you have on another does depend on your organisational position, but also on how you treat people who are dependent upon you. Okay, and I'll come back to that. So what I want to argue is that actually partnership work doesn't involve the loss of power, but a choice by staff not to yield it. And because you choose not to yield it, it, that reduces your sense of what power you have over students. It doesn't reduce the power you have, but it reduces your sense as a member of staff of what power you have. It also, though, increases the dependency that staff have on students because you're working together to achieve something and you can't achieve that if, um, without their cooperation and their help. And so you do get a few quotes in the literature which talk about vulnerability. So, um, again, this one from Alison Cooksaver, who says one of her members of staff said, I felt very vulnerable, disempowered and under observation. Again, this was in a um, students and staff working together to review teaching. And I have quite a lot of empathy with that uh, member of staff because I also have worked with students where they've come and observed my teaching um, and we've discussed it together afterwards. I was really surprised by how vulnerable I felt. I tend to think of myself as a good teacher, had quite a lot of training, quite a lot of experience in, in doing it. And it's become part of my identity. And I hadn't realised that actually giving a student the opportunity to say, you don't do that bit so well, and have you thought about doing this differently? It would affect my own self-identity. And that I would feel very vulnerable in that situation. So I've told you about my most successful partnership. I thought I'd tell you about my least as well. Um, so my least successful partnership, it did, didn't start out well. There's really poor context for working in partnership. I was told I had to. That's never a good start. I didn't have time. That's a really, really bad start as well. So this comes up, I think, on your point about sometimes people think it's a resource. <coughs> people talk about the untapped resource of students. They're going to come in and do this work for you, almost, and it's not going to take any of your time. Just, you know, it's, it'll all be fine. I really didn't have the time to do to do this. Um, I also had no say over who I was working with. 
which I, I think is also problematic. Kind of went a bit worse, and this was my fault. Um, I thought, well, I've got to do it. There's this aspect I'm not very happy with. Um, I'll ask her to have a look into this, make some recommendations to me. You can see I wasn't even really working in partnership. It was more of a um, commissioning um, and perhaps trying to take some recommendations that I can use. <coughs> now, my administrator and I were both in quite a vulnerable position at the time. So she was on a fixed term contract, very reliant upon me to either get her post extended or for a reference when she left. So she really felt the need to prove herself to me. I was in a less vulnerable position, but nevertheless felt vulnerable because we hadn't worked together very long. Um, I felt like um, I didn't want to be criticised, I guess, in front of her when I had to lead her. Because my leadership, yeah, okay, I managed her, but it was very much more based on the respect she had and why would she trust me and think about kind of what I thought if there was all this criticism. Her response to this was very defensive. Um, so we'd go into meetings and she'd just say, yeah, but you don't understand the context. We're working under this pressure and this pressure and we can't do that for this reason. And she was right, but it really wasn't productive. It was very unfortunate. My response was very much, I fell back on my position and said, it's fine, she can say what she, she likes. At the end of the day, it's my decision whether anything happens or not. So she's got to persuade me. <coughs> the project, unsurprisingly, failed. Not a lot came out of it. So in the wrong context, increased dependency of staff and students will lead to failure. Now, I'm not saying it always does, I'm saying in a bad context, it does. Even, I would argue, where um, staff are more prepared for that, <coughs> it leads to difficulties. So, this paper I was referring to by Lucy Mercer-Mapstone and her colleagues about developing students as, uh, sorry, the International Students as Partners Institute and they talked about how they tried to live up to this ideal of students as partners. So they're talking about the notion of partnership is about breaking away from being a teacher and being a student by adhering to a flat model. They were trying to adhere to an idealistic picture of partnership. They attempted to level the power differences and the result was a lot of frustration about decision-making and planning processes because no one was in charge. So I'm going to argue that I think that that narrative is problematic because it takes the focus on power takes us away from a focus on authority. And authority, Emerson argues, is legitimised power. It's given by a collective. So for example, he, he talks about the dean in a university, dean of a faculty, he can legitimately ask for feedback to be given back to students on time. He's been collectively given the power to do that. But he can't legitimately ask one of the members of staff to go and polish his car for him. 
wonder if anyone polishes cars anymore. <laughs> anyway. <coughs> and what I would argue we're doing when we do partnership work is we're giving students the authority to speak from their experience of being a student. So we're giving them authority, which is a legitimised power. And I'd say that if we thought about authority more, that might help. Lucy Mercer Mapstone and her colleagues could have authorised someone to lead. They could have said, it's fine for you to have more power in this situation. That will help us in what we're trying to do. So in their paper, they go on and they talk about it's not just power. They felt, because they were striving to act in a perfect partnership, they, I mean, you have to remember they were doing something, I guess, fairly prestigious on a global scale. They really felt they had to do it right, live up to this idealistic positive connotations. So they felt that they couldn't disagree with each other. They couldn't argue, they couldn't debate. They had to be nice to each other. And that caused frustration, as I said, slow progress, tension. But even worse than that, that, that kind of niceness inhibited their ability to learn from each other. <coughs> the other reason I think it's problematic is because there's a danger, as Cathy Bogles argued, that if partnership is seen as universally positive and we should involve all students and all situations call for partnership which I think you brought up earlier sometimes we do think that um, that's not very helpful because pragmatically there are situations where partnership may be either challenging or undesirable and um, I haven't brought a student with me today and I'm kind of making a statement by doing so. It's the start of term. So pragmatically it would have been quite difficult for me to work with a student to do this in true partnership. I could have brought someone aboard later. Um, the talk actually is quite informed by conversations I've had with a student so it's, it's kind of ironic that I didn't. But the student I've been talking to has a really important assessment at the moment. And I didn't think it'd be fair to them to invite them to come and do it. And I guess one of the things I want to argue is that we need to be really thoughtful about why are we working in partnership? What's the benefit of doing so? What are we going to gain from it? And I think I would have gained today. I think I would have had, it would have added in a sense of um, the student perspective, do they think it's idealistic? Does it fit their realities? What I hope I've done is try to draw in the literature to fill that gap. To go back to Cathy's argument, she argues that there's also danger that where partnerships promoted, the students' views may be reified. And that can risk alienation because we can overlook the important contribution of teachers. And I think I started to realise this um, in a study that I did with my colleague Susanna McGowan a couple of years ago. And we looked back at the very first year of Changemakers. Now in the first year of um, UCL Changemakers, 
it was all about student-led projects. It wasn't about partnership. Um, but there was a project that was done in our laws faculty. <coughs> and the students started to investigate um, how can we introduce formatively assessed group work. And her staff partner thought this was wonderful. It was just what the laws faculty needed uh, because there was very little group work that was done, but it was an important employability skill. So she really wanted that project done. She supported the student to do it. But she left the student alone to drive the project forward. There's very little communication between them. Um, and along the way, the project changed. And it changed drastically. It still focused on assessment. Um, but it changed to look at how can we improve the feedback that the department was giving in terms of essays. And that was really unhelpful to the department. They'd already done an audit of all the feedback the year before. They already knew the information that was collected by the student. So he said to the staff partner, well, why didn't you say anything? Why did you not try and put this back into track? And she said, well, my understanding was that the students set the agenda. They tell you what they think needs to be changed. And so we didn't want to take over. We said, well, yeah, I, ideally, idealistically, but you've just wasted everyone's time because it's of no use to you. The poor students put all this effort in and actually you were either going to make the change anyway or you weren't. It's, it's a waste of their time too. So I think sometimes when you work to an ideal, rather than thinking of pragmatically, what are we actually trying to achieve here? That can be really problematic. <coughs> and I want to argue that Actually, good work can be done just by collaborating with students. It doesn't have to be an idealised version. So I have got, I've got tons of these. If you want any of them, let me know. Um, some guides to assessment, one on feedback, that we, we designed um, for students at UCL. And the work was commissioned. We wanted to have a student guide to assessment and a student guide to feedback that was written by students. So they didn't come up with that idea, we came up with it. And we supervised them. So we wanted them to write it. They went away and they researched it. But we supervised them to research it. We supervised them to write it. We told them to use a test it. They didn't actually get cho choice in that. And then we took on the final edits of it. I said we did the design work. I'm not sure about the design work, but we can't. They didn't do that. We did that, and we also distributed them. And I would argue those those are pretty successful. They've gone down quite well at UCL, but it wasn't really a partnership, not in the idealised sense. It was more a collaboration. So, how can we build a more helpful narrative? In a different paper by Lucy Mercer, so I feel like I'm talking about her work a lot. Um, this is actually a different one. They did a literature search on staff-student partnership and they found that there was a real focus on reporting positive outcomes. And so I would argue along with them that we need to discuss challenges more in the literature. And I 
hoping, as you can see from the paper with Susanna, that I have tried to do that. I have tried to talk about it's not all easy. It's not that you're going to do this without time and effort. Um, so I think we need to discuss the challenges more. I think we need to focus on legitimising student experiences and talking about how we really gain from getting their understanding of what's happening. And actually, if we did that, we can focus less on relinquishing power, which I think is not as helpful to us. I also think we just need to be a bit less precious about what is partnership, a bit less idealistic of have we got to get it right? I don't think we have to get it right. I think we have to do what's best in the context and the situation. And I think it would also be helpful to explore where partnership's helpful and where it's not further. And that might, might not just be in terms of particular things that you're doing, but within, say, a project, if you're working together to enhance things, are there parts of it that you want to do in partnership? Are there parts you want to collaborate on? Are there parts that actually you can do, because it's not really about the student experience, but it might be more about, say, pedagogy? I think that's where I'm going to end. Thank you so much, Jane.